Welcome to another special edition of the ACG Analytics Podcast. This is David Metzner, Managing Partner. We are continuing our podcast series from home during the coronavirus pandemic. As a result of the following is a lightly edited version of a policy call we have already held. We will now proceed with the podcast. This is David Metzner. Welcome to this week's macro call from Washington, D.C. This is perhaps one of the most important calls we've done recently. We've got major developments going on here. With that, I'd like to turn it over to Chris to begin today's call. Thanks, David, and thanks, everybody, for joining us. This week is particularly important in D.C., quite a bit going on. It seems that all the mania surrounding the GameStop situation with retail investors versus institutional investors is simmering conflict in D.C. We'd love to get to that in a little bit. But, John, I want to start with this power-sharing agreement that was you know, struck between Democratic and Republican leadership in Congress. What did that mean in Washington, D.C., with the legislative agenda? It allows the committee chairman to be decided, and it is the chairman who set the agenda for their respective committees. So that means that Senator Brown will be chairman of the Senate Banking Committee. is a very different outlook than Senator Toomey, who would have been the chairman, Republican in Pennsylvania. Now, it does also mean that if there's a tie in committee, which is unusual because this is a change from normal procedure, that legislation can still leave committee and be voted on in the floor. So basically, D.C. can now operate as normal. So that's at least the start here. It's February 4th. time to get to business. Now, that said, pandemic relief continues to be the hot-button topic here. It's important. Biden is, you know, proposing this $1.9 trillion package. Republicans have balked at that number, particularly so soon after passing other pandemic relief packages. However, Biden has indicated and actually held meetings with at least these 10 Republicans who have said that they want to work together to find a compromise solution. The meeting does not seem to have actually yielded any type of tangible result, though. Where does that leave us with these negotiations? And does that just mean that we're about to move towards a reconciliation process to pass that? Well, it likely means reconciliation. There's always a chance that reconciliation collapses at the last minute because you don't have a vote to spare. It will probably be harder than to work with those 10, and and there are actually a few more Republicans who are supporting those 10, if everything fails because they will have been bypassed and, you know, egos are high among lawmakers. But today, we begin Votorama in the Senate. That conciliation process began in the Senate Tuesday evening, and it means that there were up to 50 hours of debate on the budget resolution. Democrats, as we put out in a note yesterday, yielded back their time, which is 25 of those 50 hours. So even the limited 50-hour debate process has been curtailed. At the end of that process, there is no time limit for offering amendments. As of yesterday, there were about 50 amendments which had already been filed. The average of about 44 amendments that end up being considered over the last you know, several reconciliation bills, there are two hours of debate on every first-degree amendment, a simple amendment, and then there's up to one hour of debate on any amendment which changes an amendment, which is a second-degree amendment. I would expect Democrats to continue yielding half of their time, more or less, but Votorama only ends when the Senate is physically exhausted. So I've read that February 16th is an important date here. And so what other dates do we have looking forward? You've mentioned previously the middle of March deadline for unemployment benefits extending as kind of like a, you know, a soft deadline by which lawmakers would like to pass something so that those benefits don't, you know, lapse. Yes, March 14th is the exact date. That is the target. I would expect Democrats to continue working expeditiously. It is only 
February 3rd, so they probably have time to do it. They already know more or less what they want in the bill. That is unlike what was happening under Obamacare when the House and Senate had six committees each considering different pieces of the legislation, and it really changed quite dramatically through the entire process. That is not the situation we have now. The consideration of Obamacare is actually an interesting case study because it seems like the Democrats right now are moving towards reconciliation faster, perhaps, than they would have based upon, you know, this notion that Republicans kind of, you know, stuck it to them in those discussions and they basically wasted time. I mean, is that what's partially driving this? Just Republicans aren't going to get to a yes on this agreement. So therefore, why are we going to wait a month of negotiations when the American people need the relief now? What happened under Obamacare is a little bit different. At one point, Democrats had 60 vote because Senator Specter of Pennsylvania switched parties. And they're going in to President Obama's, you know, first term in office. Most people on Capitol Hill, where you had a 51-49 Senate going into that election, thought that either McCain or Clinton, and Clinton had been burned a little on health care reform when she was first lady, were going to be president and they were going to push something. So there were actually two years of bipartisan negotiations to try to come up with ideas, anticipating moderate president and closely divided Senate. All of those discussions, the years of discussions went out the window. And so a lot of Republicans felt like they had really been sidelined. And you knew that everything had collapsed when Senator Hatch, whose name has been on every other major piece of health care legislation for the last 30, 40 years, felt shunted aside. And because there was an attempt, actually, I believe it was called the Gang of Seven. There have been a lot of different gangs in these negotiations. A better example might be how Democrats felt about the stimulus bill that President Obama pursued immediately upon taking office, where Republicans held that bill to under a trillion dollars. That was not a reconciliation bill. And a lot of Democrats feel like they got burned. They could have gotten more if they hadn't worked with Republicans. But on the other hand, Republicans had just spent a lot of money bailing out all of these entities. And that is the moment in time when, as a staffer or lawmaker, we stopped measuring things using billions and we started measuring things in trillions. And there was just a lot of sticker shock on the Republican side. A landmark moment in, in U.S. history. So, I mentioned the politics of this and the politics of the consideration, because with reconciliation, you need 50 votes. And considering the razor-thin nature or state of the Senate, that doesn't leave much room for error. And so I'm particularly concerned, if I were the Democrats, of keeping somebody like Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia on board. And so is there a risk that somebody like Manchin or maybe Cinema decides they're not going to support this and reconciliation fails? There is that risk. One of the items where Senator Manchin has already voiced his displeasure is raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour. He doesn't think that that pay scale works very well for West Virginia, but it's very possible that the Senate parliamentarian excises that portion of the bill in its entirety, and then Manchin doesn't have to try to have that debate. If for some reason this parliamentarian upholds it, and there is an effort right now to try to bring it under reconciliation rules, I think it's very clever, but I don't believe it. When I look at all the arguments, I still say this is not something that you can accomplish properly through reconciliation. But should the parliamentarian, who's sort of like the oracle of Delphi in this whole process, decide that it's been crafted in a way which meets the rules, then there maybe an effort by Manchin, instead of voting against the whole measure, to try to decrease the minimum wage from 15 to probably $11 is sort of what he said. 
or to come up with some federal minimum wage, which would be complicated, tied to the cost of living. Will there be any concessions to Republicans during this reconciliation process, you know, whether that be just Biden and his voice in support or at least openness to decreasing, you know, the amount of people that stimulus checks go to? Are, are there things that Biden can do to at least soften this and make it look less like a purely partisan reconciliation package where he's just ignoring the concerns of Republicans? I do think so, and you mentioned the big one, which is targeting the aid that goes out in the stimulus checks from the formula we've been using almost identically in various bills that Congress has passed over the last year, which is it starts phasing out at $75,000 for an individual until it disappears entirely at $99,000 for an individual. I would probably resist that if I were a Democrat, not because of that I don't believe the objections on the Republican side are valid, but simply because you would have to reprogram so many computer systems and what to get it out that it would delay getting that money out. And so there's a trade-off between the perfect system and a quick system. But, you know, the other thing you have to worry about is not someone who says, I'm going to withhold my vote because I object to the bill because it's gone too far in his or her opinion. But we... We only adopted the organizing resolution a day ago, and that was in part because Senator Warner of Virginia was quarantining, and we had a scare with Senator Leahy of Vermont the week before where he got rushed to the hospital. And so there there could be an absence in the chamber, and there are some ways that you can get around the problem of having an absence if there are many absences, but you have to worry that all your members will actually be there so you can get to the 50 votes and have the vice president break the tie. So there's a lot of moving parts is what you're telling me. And, you know, you mentioned the Senate parliamentarian a lot today. And the person, that individual plays a crucial role here in, in the reconciliation process. Like you said, I love that phrase, the Oracle of Delphi. So to close the loop on pandemic relief, then, what is our expectation? Like, what do you think is going to happen? How is this all going to shake out? Are we going to see a reconciliation bill, you know, that's $1.9 trillion? And, um, you know, what's your probability of that? And on what timeline? Well, the reconciliation instructions are for $1.9 trillion. They're unlikely to go up because you would need 60 votes to spend more than that. They could go down if things get thrown out of the bill, either because you're going to lose votes or because the parliamentarian says they don't adhere to the rules. And some of these rules are not just Senate rules. Some are, but some of them have been actually written into U.S. code, even though they're subject to interpretation, as many items in the U.S. code are. I believe right now it would be possible for Democrats to get the bill passed by the end of the month, only because they're really pulling out all the stops to move expeditiously and they more or less know what they want. So you're not having, you know, a lot of fights between the chambers that have to get settled. But if things slip, which they usually do in D.C., then I would expect the bill to pass by mid-March. That assumes, of course, that there isn't some problem and reconciliation comes and collapses on itself. But that's an outside risk. That's not like a major risk. Well, I don't ever expect, you know, a plane to crash or a person to to die or get ill or have to be absent from the chamber, but we are dealing with the Senate and lawmakers travel a lot and there is some predictability to absences and other events, which you, you don't know for certain, but quite frankly, the only reason we're in the posture we're in now is because Senator Isaacson of Georgia became ill and had to retire. You don't know when it will happen, but you do know that these things happen in life. 
All right, so moving on to, to GameStop. This topic has really, you know, been all over the media. Everyone says when you have Ted Cruz and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on the same side, and then you have Elizabeth Warren as, like, the moderating voice, you know, not the most extreme voice on that. You know you're in for a very interesting bout of headlines here in D.C., so sorting through all that, the basis of the note that we put out says that it basically is just noise. There's not all that much that's going to happen. Action by Congress is unlikely. The SEC is slow. And that, you know, the most likely action is from the exchanges in the short term. Gabby, I don't know if you want to touch on that or if John. Well, I think if we turn to Congress, they're going probably to make the most noise about it. They're definitely going to have hearings. For them to legislate on it, they would probably need 60 votes, which won't happen, but they would also need to know what they want to do, and more likely they would turn to the SEC, which is the correct agency to look at in this issue. With the SEC, it's a pretty long process, as you mentioned. You have to collect the data, you have to figure out what happened, and then you have to figure out what to do, but not only is the rulemaking a long process in itself that takes around a year, there's no chairman. In a bunch of the departments, there's just acting chairman. Really, there's just not a lot of solutions to this issue, and it's definitely not going to solve anything in the immediate. So it really does have to be exchanges and their balance sheets and what they decide to do to protect themselves and to try to manage the situation. I think then, therefore, that you're likely to see the exchanges self-regulate. And so what that means to me here is that taking into consideration everything you just said, there will be hearings on this. They're already scheduled. John, you've talked about them. But those are going to be an opportunity for, for lawmakers to, you know, voice their opposition or voice their concerns. But ultimately, this issue is slowly, I will say, because I think that maybe we have a little bit of a disagreement, I'm unsure, is slowly losing steam in D.C. I'm not sure this is really losing steam is the right, right way to put it. It's being managed is the way I would put it. There was a, a meeting of regulators called by Yellen yesterday that singles the regulators to continue investigating to look into this. An SEC investigation could take as long as 12 months. A rulemaking process could take another 12 months. These are slow-moving trains. As, as Gabby said, the idea that legislation is highly remote, a management association that represents institutional investors is on the scene. They're trying to thwart imprudent regulations such as, you know, publicizing your shorts, limiting your shorts. So we're likely to end up with is the safest path forward to, to avoid various sorts of liabilities is for the exchanges to self-regulate. But again, it, it's the first real test of the Biden administration in a financial consumer space, and both the White House and Yellen have added their voices to the issue. Yeah, maybe more what I meant by saying losing steam is that when you think about these processes that you just mentioned, they take potentially 12 months, and there's not really an immediate policy option out of Congress. So by nature, you know, as these things roll on, they may be occurring in the background, and, you know, the administration may be tackling it, like you said. But just the lack of, like, an immediate policy response means this slowly, slowly fades out of the headline. It's not going to be a headline issue on, on Bloomberg or on CNBC or anything like a month from now. I would like to thank everyone for joining us today. I'd also like to thank our team of analysts for offering their unique insights. You can also follow us on Twitter for further insight into capital markets and the political economy. If you wish to reach out for more information, please email us at research at acg-analytics.com. Everyone have a good day. Thank you very much.